All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your secret passage, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, I'm going to talk about The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belairs. This was published in 1973. This book came in third on our most recent Patreon vote, so it is the last book that I'm taking from that ballot. And it is a book that has been on the ballot for a long time, I mean, well over a year, though it was consistently missing the mark by only two, sometimes three votes. So I was determined to keep it on there until it, it made it past that threshold there. This is a kid's book. It's been a while since we've done one of those. It is also the first in a a series of either three or 12 books, depending on the extent to which you are a a purist. John Belairs wrote three books about the protagonist of this book. Uh, Louis Barnevelt is his name. Those were all written in the the 70s. And and just to be clear, the third one is actually not. uh, I mean, Louis is in that book, but he's actually not the protagonist of that book. It's his, uh, his best friend, Rose. But anyway, after John Belair's death, uh, and, and he died at only 53, uh, and that was in the 1990s, there was another writer who took up the series. I've read this book in a volume published by Barnes & Noble. It's called The Best of John Belair's Volume 1. It's It's got all three of these uh, books in it. This book's been on my shelf for a long time, but when I took it down to read it for the episode, I actually discovered that I had never ever opened it before. I had bought it just to, to have it. it. It's one of those books that Barnes & Noble puts near the cash registers and sells in hardcover for you know, only five bucks or something like that. And I just loved these books when I was a kid. So it was just kind of an impulse buy. It just was, I might want to read that again someday. And now I will have it. And I also realized as I was pulling this off the shelf that I really had no idea what the book was about. I, I definitely remember reading all three of these as a kid. Uh, in fact, they were the first horror books I I ever read, uh, though we might now actually classify these more as urban fantasy, but when I read them, they very definitely were horror stories. And they definitely were my first introduction to creepy mansions and warlocks and cemeteries. But all I remembered were images from these books, all of them about the house that is the setting of the book. I couldn't actually have named a single character, could not have told you what the solution to the mystery was. And All of that made me very excited to read this again. And in fact, although I read this one on my own for the the show, and so I read it very quickly to to do that, I've actually, uh, in the meantime, since since prepping for this episode and actually getting to record this episode, I've read the other two to my uh, my one and a half year old son. But all right, that is enough preamble. Let's uh, let's just get to it. Let's go talk about the house with a clock in its walls. This is a kid's book. And therefore, our protagonist is a kid. His name is Louis Barnevelt, and he's from Wisconsin. But this is also a horror book. In fact, it's something of a haunted house story. And so that means that Louis has to start the book in completely new circumstances, ideally in a new place with mysteries to encounter, horrors to face, and also puzzles to solve. This is a well-worn trope, of course, and probably you can summon to mind any number of cinematic examples of this, like montages as the family drives to a creepy hotel in Colorado, or family moving day, or arriving at the new boarding school, right? That sort of thing. Belair's here, well, he uses the death of Lewis's parents to be the catalyst for the change of scenery, 
And the book opens with Lewis on a long-distance bus from a small town in Wisconsin to a small town in Michigan, where he is going to live with his uncle Jonathan, who is a middle-aged bachelor. Though, to be clear, he is way more Uncle Joey than Uncle Jesse. Now, right, of course, Uncle Jonathan here, he lives in the house with the clock in its walls, the title of the book. Uh, This house, of course, is really the thing we are here for. It is the setting. It's the, the mystery that's going to need to be solved. And it is a very cool house. It's a three-story mansion with a turret. Uh, It's got a secret passage, has multiple pianos, and it's got clocks everywhere. Uh, Real clocks, right? Not the digital clocks that we all use now. There's also a bucket of foreign coins. Some of them are quite old, but these are just used for playing poker with the neighbor, Mrs. Zimmerman. So let's talk about the adult characters in this book. And I, I know I haven't said much about Lewis himself yet, but we will get there. So Uncle Jonathan is a middle-aged bachelor. Uh, he's not the Bruce Wayne playboy variety, right? He's a nerd who likes to live alone so that he can do his nerd things. He enjoys war games, for example, but also he's a warlock. He does magic, like real magic. He can create illusions that allow Lewis to be present at Waterloo or the Spanish Armada. He can use magic to manipulate which playing cards are coming out of the draw pile, though that's clearly cheating, And he can also use magic to eclipse the moon. Most of this magic requires rituals, right? It's not a superpower. It's a type of science, right? It's a skill with a lot of learning behind it. Mrs. Zimmerman, with whom Jonathan plays poker and does also actually cheat a little bit sometimes, uh, Mrs. Zimmerman is also a magician. And she's even got a PhD in the subject. And, well, she's much more serious about it than Jonathan. We don't quite know how old Mrs. Zimmerman is, but she seems to be a generation older than Jonathan. And Mr. Zimmerman is definitely not uh, around at this point. Here in this book, we can presume that he's dead. We do learn in one of the other books, the third book, I think, that he, he is dead. He has, he has passed away. But we don't know anything about that here in this book. Mrs. Zimmerman lives next door. Uh, her house, though, is definitely not a mansion, but she loves to make cookies for Jonathan and therefore, by extension, for Lewis as well. She and Jonathan know each other from the Caffernam County Magician Society, and in fact, Jonathan bought this mansion house in order to live next door to Mrs. Zimmerman when the house became available for for purchase, because Mrs. Zimmerman is his best friend. Now, the people who used to own this house, uh, the people who had it before Uncle Jonathan did, they also were magicians. Uh, they were named Mr. and Mrs. Izzard. But they were not nice and kindly cooking, making magicians. They were evil magicians. Before they died, Isaac Izzard hid a magic clock in the house. What its purpose is, though, that is a mystery. But Jonathan hears it ticking in all the walls of the house, but he can never find it because it seems to be behind every single wall. And he knows it's probably not a good thing, but he's also not in a hurry to figure it out. It's more of a hobby interest for him, actually. But for Lewis, it's really the defining characteristic of the house, and it's the thing that really matters to him. Jonathan does find the sound of the clock irritating, and it it may actually be that he finds it scarier than he's letting on for the, the kids in the book. But because it's irritating at the very least, he has filled up his house with other clocks in order to drown out the sound. But He's in this creepy habit of sometimes going around the house in the middle of the night and turning all the clocks off and listening for the clock in the walls. 
Lewis sees him doing this several times, and one time he follows him in order to see what it is that he's really up to here. Jonathan catches him, and he explains the the backstory here that I've just explained to you, and also about how you know everyone in this book seems to be a magician, and you know that's that. That's the the setup. Obviously, the plot here is going to have to be about finding this clock, but it also has to be about discovering what it's for and then stopping it, right? Lewis is going to be central to all of this, of course, though it all happens accidentally. There's no active detecting, there's no active researching, or even really exploring at the the heart of the story. There are three beats here. The first is that Lewis is trying to show off for a potential friend who just is not that into him. And so he learns how to resurrect the dead from one of his uncle's books, and he heads off to the cemetery with this potential friend. Lewis doesn't really know what he's up to, but he does succeed in resurrecting the wife of Isaac Izzard, and that's going to be a problem. She buys the house across the street, and she moves in, and then she also breaks into her old house, right, the house with the clock and its walls. She does that while everyone is out, and she finds the key to the clock in a secret compartment. The inference here is that she is now, and the inference here is that she is now one step closer to doing whatever it is that she and Isaac were trying to accomplish in the first place before they died. Figuring out what that is, that's the next beat. And again, Lewis is key here. He decides that he wants to play the organ up on the third floor. Uh, this is an organ that came with the house. So just to, just to refresh, this house has multiple pianos and one organ. At any rate, Lewis realizes that there's a secret compartment here as well, and it's got some old notes of Isaac Izzard's. Together, Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman read these over, and they discover that what the clock is for is ending the world. Why the Izzards wanted to do that, that we don't know, but that is definitely what it's for. And so, you know, we can't let Mrs. Izzard get to the clock first. And Lewis solves that problem too. He suggests using his magic eight ball in order to get some advice, and although that seems like a really silly, really stupid idea, it turns out that actually it works. Though it directs them to play poker until they find a magical card in the deck, and it's actually that card that gives them the next step they really need, which is to go check out the coal bin in the basement. Behind the coal bin is a secret door that leads to a secret room, and hey, that's where the clock is. But of course, just as they find it, Mrs. Izzard is there too. And it turns out that she couldn't get into the room by herself, even though she knew where it was. And so she actually really needed them to find it. And this is helping her out, even though it seems like it should be a step towards our, you know, our hero's victory here. And uh, yeah, now that they have opened the room up for her, she's used a hand of glory in order to freeze them so that she can just walk into the room and use the clock and... Uh, and the world. Except, Lewis is not frozen. He knew all about Hands of Glory because, well, he reads a lot. And so he was able to avoid looking at it, and, and that's the key to its power. And so Lewis runs into the room, he smashes up the clock, and that move, doing that, that saves the day. It also sends Mrs. Izzard back to death. And that's it. That's the plot. And so we can, uh, we can go talk some themes and motifs now. There are two items on my list of themes here, and they're related to each other. But even before we get into the specifics, I just want us to remind ourselves that this is a kid's book, right? It is a book for 10-year-olds, and it is therefore meant to have lessons that matter to, to, to them, to, to kids. 
And the first of these lessons, the first theme that I want to talk about here is about being yourself. It's about being comfortable in your own skin, being comfortable with who you are, liking yourself. The inciting incident of this story is that Lewis uses some necromancy to resurrect the villain of the story who, you know, otherwise would have just stayed dead and the clock would never actually have become a danger. But the reason that Lewis did that was to impress someone who didn't really like him that much, right? It was Lewis trying to be cool in order to impress somebody. And the thing about Lewis is that he's never really had friends, even back home in Wisconsin. Lewis is fat. That's the word Bellairs uses. It's not my word, but that's the word Bellairs uses. And Lewis is not good at sports. And in a small town in the 1940s, that's what boys do if they want to have friends, right? They play sports. If you don't play sports, though, you can be a reader. That's what Lewis does. And so his friends are are books, really. But he would actually like some real friends. And so when he gets to New Zebedee, Michigan here with Uncle Jonathan, he tries to get better at sports, but it just doesn't work. Of course, in the end, right? It's Lewis's own attributes that save the day. If Lewis were not an incessant reader, he would not have known about Hands of Glory, right? If he was not overtly curious, he wouldn't have found the notes that let them know what was going on in the first place. And we'll get back to Lewis in a minute, but I actually want to look at this motif in the adults, too. Uncle Jonathan is essentially Lewis as a grown-up. He also is fat, and he also is a nerd. But he likes himself. He's comfortable with himself. And we see this the most in his friendship with Mrs. Zimmerman. The two of them like to tease each other about their negative attributes. Uh, Some of these are about personalities, but mostly these are about their bodies. Uh, I didn't really love that part, but it's it's here nonetheless. And Mrs. Zimmerman, for example, right, how this works is uh, that Mrs. Zimmerman will tease Jonathan about his weight or about his crazy beard, and then Jonathan will tease her about being old. And look, these are the same types of taunts that Lewis hears from other kids. It's always about his body. It's always about his physical attributes. And the kids say these things about Jonathan as well. So it's a sharp contrast, right? The things the kids say to Lewis as insults are things that Mrs. Zimmerman says to Jonathan's as a sign of affection. And let's face it, Uncle Jonathan is cool. I mean, he's awesome. If you are a reader, and well, look, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you're someone who reads books. You are a reader, right? And if you are a reader, then Uncle Jonathan, well, he represents at least one idealized version of yourself, right? Probably a version that you fantasized about when you were a kid, living alone with no constraints like a family or the need to work for a living. You just get to spend all your time on your hobbies. You, you, you live in a mysterious mansion. You also know real magic. And to be honest, that does still sound really awesome to me. But because Belairs draws this parallel between Lewis and Jonathan, though he never spells that out, but because he's drawing that parallel, we as kids can see that for Uncle Jonathan to be Uncle Jonathan, he actually had to be Lewis first. And that what changed was being able to ignore the taunts of others. It's not that they went away. It's that he learned to ignore them. And this, of course, is something we've all gone through. But when we're kids, it it really does seem like it's never going to end. And in fact, it often seems like it's just going to get worse. And all of this dovetails with the second item on my list here, and that is friendship. In fact, it's in fact it's been hard for me to talk about the one without the other because wanting friends, right, that is at the core of Lewis's feelings of inadequacy. 
And at the same time, having friends is really, I think that's at the core of Jonathan's self-assurance and confidence. As adults, right, we, the, the readers, the audience, at least of this podcast episode, we know that what has happened here is that Jonathan has grown up. And as he grew up, he's discovered how to make friends based around his shared interests and hobbies, uh, rather than just out of a desire to be included in some group of people that he sees, probably a group that doesn't even do stuff that, you know, you like to do, you like doing yourself. So Jonathan is a member of a magician's club, and that's how he has friends. And now he's living this awesome life where he lives next door to his best friend, and they spend all their time together pursuing their shared interests. But Lewis doesn't have that. All Lewis has is the desire to be included, and included in sports, a thing he doesn't even like. And when you're a kid, even if you recognize that you should have friends who like the stuff you like, it can be hard to find those people. And that's even worse during early adolescence. At least it was for me. My memory of it is that that, that's how this was. And the reason it was like that is because we also get ashamed of the things that we like, or maybe not ashamed, but embarrassed, right? We get embarrassed of, well, really, we just get embarrassed of liking things that all the the same way that we get embarrassed, uh, not so much by our parents or anything specific about them. We get embarrassed simply because we actually just have parents. It's just the fact of having parents that in itself embarrasses us. You know, it's not that our parents tell terrible jokes or something like that. Anyway, it's it's a tough time. I'm trying not to relive it too much here, right? But the real happy ending of this book is Well, it's not in the climactic chapter when Lewis defeats the bad guys. The real happy ending of this book is in the coda when Lewis is hanging out with Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman, and he explains that he now recognizes that he and and Tarby, uh, Tarby was the kid he was trying to impress, right? that Lewis has learned that he and Tarby were never meant to be friends because they're just not the same type of people. But anyway, that doesn't really matter because, hey, Lewis has actually found someone who is his type, someone who is a nerd like him. Uh, in this case, this person is a nerd about different types of cannons, uh, or as Jonathan describes it in a phrase that I really love, someone who is an expert on Elizabethan ordinance. And making that friend, uh, who we'll meet in the, the, the second book, that is the real arc for Lewis. There is one more note I want to make on this, and, and that's about gender. Jonathan's best friend is a woman, but there is absolutely no suggestion of romance here. I mean, not even any wink at adult readers that something is going on that Lewis just doesn't see. It's simply not there. In this world, the world of this book, it is just perfectly normal for an adult man and an adult woman to carry on a friendship with no romantic or sexual tension at all. And that is awesome. And in fact, this carries over to Lewis, too, because the new friend that he's found is a girl. Uh, her name is Rose Rita Pottinger. She's going to be instrumental in the second book, and then actually the protagonist of the third book, and uh, she's a really awesome character. But I'm going to have to not let myself talk about her because, uh, well, we're only doing the first book, but perhaps in the, in the future, Patreon supporters will want us to carry on with this series, which uh, uh, I would have a lot of fun doing. All right, let's go talk some strengths and weaknesses. Usually I like to end with strengths so that I don't feel like I'm leaving a book, leaving an episode on a whiny note. But in this case, I actually want to start with the strengths because the weaknesses that I want to talk about probably aren't really weaknesses. And I hope that they'll lead to some questions we can talk about on the the forum or on the, the subreddit. 
The thing I love most about this book is the setting. I mean, this house is just awesome. And I used to fantasize about living here. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, but of course that community was only really a suburb after the Second World War when we got the interstate system, the Eisenhower interstate system. From its founding in the 19th century up until the 1950s, so a little over 100 years, it was its own town. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's older than Chicago by a year. And so the downtown area was old. Uh, it looked like a small Midwestern town of the type that's envisioned by Bel Airs here in this book. And Bel Airs actually modeled the town of New Zebedee on his own hometown of Marshall, Michigan. We had three-story Victorian mansions like the kind where Uncle Jonathan lives. And in fact, although I grew up in a small one-story box that had been built in the 1950s two blocks away, once you got into the downtown area, there was one of these mansions that was a little run down. It was painted midnight blue and, well, it, it looked like it was straight out of Scooby-Doo. Or, you know, it looked like it was straight out of John Belair's. So the town here, this was a setting that worked for me. And from the outside, really, this house seemed familiar. While at the same time, I spent a lot of my childhood wondering what the insides of these old mansions in my community were like. And of course, also, right, obviously, I, I assumed that they had all sorts of secret passages and magic items and ghosts. So this book spoke to me, both as a, a child and now again as an adult, where... Once again, I'm living in a box from the 1950s, though this one is actually a two-story box because I live on the East Coast now and they're all two-story boxes. Part of what makes this setting come alive, though, are the illustrations by Edward Gorey, who was an absolute giant of illustrators in the 20th century. His drawings really speak for themselves, so I won't belabor the point here, but I will say that if this is a book that you don't own, but are thinking about getting, maybe because you've got a kid and would like to uh, read this book with them or you know, give it to them or something like that, I would say make sure you get one with the original illustrations because they're awesome. The last strength that I want to list here are just the themes themselves. Kids' books are, on some level, meant to be preparing kids to enter the adult world, right? Preparing them for adulthood. Belairs definitely does that here, and I think it's great. He does an awesome job of it. Something I would really love to talk about on the forum, though, is how this book would be written differently today. In particular, I'd like to talk about how these themes would be addressed now, right, 50 years later. Because one of Belairs' messages to nerdy kids is that they just have to put up with the name-calling and the bullying, and it'll eventually be better when they grow up. There is absolutely no comeuppance for the kids who are taunting Lewis. And those kids don't, I mean, they just don't learn to think in this book. And I feel like that's the opposite of the approach that writers tend to take now, right? That writers now tend to have those kids learn to be kinder and inclusive. But maybe it's not. I might just not have my pulse on, on you know, contemporary kids' books here in the, well, almost really the, the second quarter of the 21st century at this point. But anyway, I just think that would make a really fun conversation to compare storytelling then and now and well, I guess also it would be fun to talk about which messaging you think is better. And to be honest, I'm not just asking about that as someone who likes talking about books. I'm I'm asking that as a new parent. I'm asking that as someone who's in, invested in this. I, I want to know what you think is best. And especially if you yourself are a parent, I would be interested in talking about what choices you have made about what you've had your kids read. And thinking about these themes comparatively, that can lead us into the weaknesses that I want to address. 
These aren't really weaknesses so much as critiques, because about halfway through this book, I find myself really unsatisfied with it as an adult novel. Now, right, it's not an adult novel. It's a kid's book, and I loved it when I was its target audience. But there are two things that really bothered me about the storytelling here. Uh, the, the first of these, and also it's the, the biggest of these, is that the story is told from a really strange perspective. Lewis is the character through whose eyes we see the world, but we don't actually see his world. It's really only after the fact that we're told about his life at school and so on. We don't actually ever see any of that happening. There is not a single scene at school, and there are only a few with Tarby. And that's because this story is about the house, right? I mean, it's, it's the title character of the book, right, is the house. But at the same time, Lewis doesn't solve the mystery through any active sleuthing. It is all just an accident. And while Lewis is running around having happy accidents in the book, in the background, Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman are actually being active in the story. They're the ones trying to find the clock. They're the ones trying to figure out how to stop the Izzards. And so we're really just being told the story, not of Lewis, but actually of Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman, just through the limited perspective of Lewis. And so we don't really get either the full story of the house or the full story of Lewis's move to this totally crazy town in Michigan. And look, I feel a little embarrassed about talking about Inspector Gadget, but I want to talk about Inspector Gadget because it's kind of the same idea, right? There's a kid who is busy trying to solve the same mysteries as an adult family member, but in Inspector Gadget, the kid is always the one who succeeds. But I mean, really succeeds, right? In Inspector Gadget, the kid is active and agentive and competent, where Lewis just stumbles into accidents. And it's, well, it's not really satisfying because it feels like the adults were the ones having the real story and, and not the other way around. The other thing that I want to critique before we close out the episode is, is, is briefer, but it may also be a bigger deal. Lewis's parents died a, a few days, maybe it's a few weeks before this book begins, but it never feels like it. We don't get Lewis grieving at all. We don't see any poor choices that seem to be rooted in grief. We don't get anything like that. The sad backstory that Belairs does use to motivate Lewis is not about his parents dying. It's about being picked last in gym. And while that definitely sucks, somehow, you know, from my perspective as an adult, that seems inconsequential next to your parents suddenly dying and you then having to move to a new state to live with a relative you've never met before. But here, that's just a plot device. I mean, it's not even a plot device, really. It's a backstory device. But it could have been so much more. I really wanted this story to deal with that tragedy, to deal with Lewis's grief. And certainly, if I were writing the story about an adult in a situation like this, that's what the story would be about, right? So I think if I were an editor who received this story today, I would suggest changing the catalyst for Lewis's move here, like, you know, just something else, something less tragic, like it could just be you're going to your uncle's for the summer. Or, you know, um, actually, I guess just to borrow a trick from Gene Wolfe, it could be that uh, you know, your parents are uh, going to Europe for a year or five, and so you need to go live with your, your uncle here. But I would love to know what you think of these criticisms. And so on that note, that's going to bring my review to a close. But as I said, I hope you'll come by the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or drop by the subreddit and talk with me about these critiques, also about the themes that I have focused on. 
But of course, also on what I left out, uh, and in particular, I left out any mention that this book is meant to be funny. Funny is, well, it's not really my thing. And I'm not sure that I even noticed it at all when I was a kid, so I've left it alone here on the episode. But I think there's a really strong chance that someone out there in the audience you know, felt like this was the primary experience of the book. And if that's true, I, I would love to hear from you about that. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. This show is going to be off next month for the holidays, but I'll be back in January with the first book from a brand new Patreon vote. And that book is going to be The Teleportation Accident by Ned Bowman. This is a book that I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to. I have a sense of what this book is about, or at least a sense of the setting of this book, and I'm really excited about it. But until then, and maybe especially if you're traveling for the holidays, uh, now's a great time to go check out any of the Clay Temple Media shows that maybe you're not listening to. We do a lot of shows here on the network. And, well, I guess if you do already listen to all of those shows and you are caught up, you are current, and are still looking for something to listen to, and you're not yet a Patreon supporter, there are, at this point, close to 100 bonus episodes on Patreon that you can get immediate access to by joining us today. And your support goes a long way to keeping all the shows on the air. We really appreciate it. But until next time, until January, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 